Barbara, thanks so much for making the time to come on the show. My pleasure, Sean. Yeah, so I was uh, I was actually listening to your episode with with Joe Rogan, and was just fascinated by uh, just kind of the, the story and the history of all these things. And this is not something that I am particularly averse about or have great depth of knowledge. So I was really excited to bring you on to kind of pick your brain on some of the histories of what's happened with the coal industry, of course, and a lot of these other corporate denials that you've outlined in your in your latest book, The Industrial Strength Denial. Um, one thing I wanted to cover as I was doing research and I went to your website is that you had a section specifically for China, dedicated to China. And uh, and for the people that don't know, it was, well, actually give us an outline of what happened. I'm not even sure the details of exactly how it happened. Um, I'm not surprised, of course, but give us an idea of like, what, why do you have a section just dedicated to China in right. your website? Well, on my website. The reason is that my first book, Coal, A Human History, looks at coal in the past up through modern times and it includes a chapter on china which looked at the history of china goes through the maoist era talks about today um and uh and that was a fascinating chapter to write i thought and and i went to china did some research i mean it was it was i thought you know pretty pretty fascinating and and I didn't think terribly hostile to China. In fact, I thought kind of sympathetic to a developing country finally trying to develop and suddenly climate change is an issue. Sure. Um, but but China apparently thought it was hostile. Uh, so I, I had learned many years ago that among the foreign additions to that book, and there were a few, uh, one was in, in China, one was in Taiwan. And uh, this was around, I think, 2003. And I received the version of the book that Taiwan published. I never got the version of the book that China published. <laughs> and I wasn't sure why and tried to get it through my agent, my publishers and whatnot. And, and it never arrived. And since I can't read Chinese anyway, I wasn't you know, going to push it too hard. And I kind of moved on to other things. Um, and then my daughter studied Chinese and grew up and went to China for a few months to study and managed to get a hold of my book and presents it to me. And there's enough English in there um, that I looked at it and I immediately realized they had removed the entire China chapter. Wow. That's how the book got published there. Uh, so that was astonishing to me. It, it, it felt kind of like a little amputation, you know, like you just take your shoes off and discover a toe is missing or something that you really had counted on being there. Um, and, right, and you weren't even notified of this, right? You just, no, you had to no, find no, out you're on your own. Right. And, and I think that's probably why I didn't get a copy of the book, you know, for many, many years. Um, so I objected and there were complaints. And then I was told there would be another edition and we would talk about, you know, any edits. Um, and then another edition came out and it still had was lacking the China chapter. So, you know, it's hard to know what to do as an author. Uh, what I ended up doing was getting the Chinese chapter translated uh, from English into Mandarin and made that available on my website. So my hope is any really curious reader 
who wants to read that chapter in Mandarin will be able to get there. I don't know if they can or not, but it seemed like about the best thing I could do under the circumstances. Sure. I mean, did they, I, I guess I'm curious to know, like, how did they remove the chapter? Was it in a discreet way where they removed certain parts of the chapter? Or did you notice you looked at, this, at the table of contents and you're just like, an entire chapter is gone? Is that they what the case was? The entire chapter. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Ruthless. And they removed the references to it in the introduction and the conclusion, like the little paragraph here and there. So yeah, it was, it was, you know, it wasn't really surgical. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. And do you think it's the government that decided to take action on that, or was it the people that owned the 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 rights to that book in that in the in country? I think the the publisher presumably knew what was acceptable under the government standards. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't necessarily imagine there were government officials there slicing and dicing, but, but I suspect there's just a, there was some recognition that it was too critical of China. Uh, and so that wasn't going to be part of the book. Okay. Well, you know, we're going to dig into this just because of the fact that they try to hide it. What yeah, was, <laughs> what were some of the key highlights that you incited about China, uh, which I'm sure were just facts, right? You know, you were just outlining sure. what's actually happened. What, right. how, how, what was the involvement of China and the coal industry in terms of the impacts that it's had, you know, globally and what, what they've done from a historical perspective? Well, I mean, right now, China is the biggest coal user in the world. It consumes half the coal. Um, and coal is the primary contributor to global warming. I mean, of among the fossil fuels, it's, it's the worst one in terms of pollution per unit of energy. Uh, so the more coal dependent you are, the more you're going to be contributing to climate change. And so I, I assume that that was part of it. I suspect a lot of it also was just that I, uh, you know, I wrote some things about the Maoist era that they're maybe not quite that happy to to have publicized yet, um, you know, including the Great Leap Forward and the horrible famine that resulted as a result of, of trying to persuade the, the people to do these sort of backyard steel furnaces and, and distribute coal for that. At one point, Mao tried to change the coal industry from where the coal mines were pretty good to a place where the coal mines were not so good because there were more people there. Mm. Um, and that turned out not to be a, a great idea. Uh, I talk a little bit about um, the, you know, just all the political suppression during that era uh, and the essentially the energy famine that resulted um, during during those years and until things really started changing in the last few decades. So I don't know exactly what it is that they didn't like. Sure. Um, but because 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 really, I you know, when I first heard it was going to be published in China, I was surprised, but I wasn't shocked because I thought pretty much everything I wrote about was pretty public and that it was, uh, you know, again, sort of sympathetic to a problem that any developing nation in that era was was going to find itself in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess I was uh, a little too naive about their openness on this issue. Right. In some ways, we, it feels like we're living in a bubble because of the transparency, well, quote unquote, transparency and the openness that we have, at least in the Western world, of the information that's out there. But obviously, in China, Google doesn't work. Uh, you know, there, there's firewalls everywhere. You know, I've got a language learning company that I run that cannot even 
in you know, Chinese Chinese users can't even come into. So it's almost mm-hmm. like they they do live in their own little bubble that no, big bubble, of course, that is sometimes you know because of the language barrier and so forth. Yeah, we, I guess we just never know what type of information that they're actually uh, being fed. Um, yeah. You know, particularly outside of places like Shanghai and Beijing and and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. So, how did we get here? You know, in terms of the the impact and the power that coal has, and how difficult it is for us to reverse the 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 impact of coal and the damage that it has done to the environment and and, and to to the to the global world. What is the history of how coal became such a such a fundamental part of our society and, and our economy? Right. Well, yeah, that's a <laughs> it's that's a big a one. Yeah. Right. I mean, I guess maybe I'll just start with pointing out that you know fossil fuels are, of course, concentrated power gathered you know in ages past and over millions of years and, and handily condensed in, into a much more concentrated form and they contain a lot of power and that's something that we really love to have and and when we started as a species you know using up our trees and we wanted more forms of energy coal was a really handy one because mm-hmm. Unlike oil and natural gas, it was solid. And in a pre-industrial era, you could dig it up with shovels and buckets and put it into wagons and ships, wooden ships, and, and sail around. And, and so it's not a surprise, I think, that coal would be our first fossil fuel when we, when we really wanted to sort of get into those larger stores of energy or needed to because of deforestation. As it happens, Britain and China, but, but let's talk about Britain, uh, Britain was really the first company... A country to be transformed by coal. And one of the reasons it had to turn to coal was because it had so deforested its little island. Um, and, and it happened to have a lot of pretty accessible coal. Mm. So it digs into that. And, and when it did, that really sparked the Industrial Revolution, um, both because it provided a lot of power but because also it created certain problems that had to be technologically solved, like your coal mines are flooding. So what do they invent to pump out the coal mines? They invent the steam engine, which Mm. then becomes the heart of the industrial revolution. Coal is heavy and it is, while it's a solid and you can put it in a ship or a wagon, it's still hard to move. So they had to figure out, well, how are we gonna move this stuff uh, the distances that we need to. And one of the things they came up with as a, as a result was the railway. So between the steam engine and the railroads, you suddenly had in place some really key elements to the Industrial Revolution. And that's one of the reasons why Britain, this little island on the edge of Europe, which had been sort of a backwater, uh, becomes a global power. It's one of the reasons. I mean, they sure. also dominate the, the dominated the slave trade, which I talk about in my second book, but but coal played a big part of it. It also meant that Britain was among the first nations to really confront the downsides of industrialization, the pollution, the the changing lifestyles of of this new industrial class of workers who are living under these terrible conditions. Um, Then America comes along and it turns out we have more coal than Britain, and eventually we start mining more of it. We also had more forests, so it took us a little bit longer to get to the coal. 
Uh, and then we become an industrial power around uh, a stronger one than Britain around 1900. And so that the 20th century becomes uh, an era of, of American power. In China, again, you had this very ancient coal industry, I mean, a thousand years ago. Um, and Marco Polo then goes to China, and he's from Italy, right? And, and he doesn't, he's from Venice, he doesn't know what coal is, and he writes back about this strange rock that they burn in, in China. Uh, and there was a lot of industrialization there um, a thousand years ago. Then it kind of faded away, and, and now, you know, we see it coming back. Um, so I, that's kind of a, a roundabout way to answer your question. I mean, but coal transformed the world because it involved a lot of power and a lot of power that came with a lot of baggage. And yeah. um, we're, we're seeing the consequences of that now. Sure, sure. And, and I guess beyond the accessibility and how affordable it is, I guess the, the, there wasn't a viable alternative that kind of matched those two different qualities of accessibility and and cost, which is why people decided to use it at a large scale, I imagine. Right. Not so much then. I mean, there there was wood and wood became was a was a powerful source uh, of energy much later than you would expect. Um, but in places where they were running out of forests, if they had coal, boy, they're you know, they would turn to that and they would put up with the pollution. They would put up with the smell. They hated the smell in Britain. In <laughs> fact, there were laws passed in the 1300s banning the burning of coal because people thought it smelled so terrible. But when push came to shove and they were faced with the you know, fuel crisis, there was the coal. And then the coal gave us the ability to, for example, make steel much, much better than we could and, and to industrialize in other ways. And that opens up the possibility of you know, drilling rigs and, and pumping stations and pipelines and, and the things you need to really exploit natural gas and oil. So that's right. sort of, you know, it was our first fossil fuel that kind of carried us into the industrial world. Now we are, in fact, seeing coal fade away, certainly from the developing countries. And that's pretty astonishing. And I've been in this business long enough to be, you know, heartened by how much progress we have made in replacing coal with cleaner technologies. We are only starting to address how are we going to, to push back on oil and natural gas. That's going right. to be it. You know, that's the next step. And in, in terms of circling back in terms of how we've gotten to rely so much on coal with, and, and it seems like only, only recently in the recent decades that we've really decided to take action on the impacts that it's had. Is it that before, you know, we are talking about banning coal because of the smell, not necessarily the impact it has on the, on the, in the environment or the, or the global um, climate change, were people just not aware of the impacts because it was such a new thing and people were rushing to figure out who's going to be the, you know, claim more territory and who's going to be the next economic power of the world that people just didn't really think about the actual negative consequences of, of that? And do we just not have the technology to measure these types of, of things? Well, certainly not way back. Um, but the way that environmental regulation has always worked is you start with the obvious stuff, right? So they immediately knew it smelled bad. They immediately knew it left black ashes on things and soot on things. Um, there was some debate, you know, around like the 1600s when the plague was sweeping through London. And, and the debate was, does coal keep these dangerous diseases away, or does it make us more sick? And there were arguments that coal would help keep the plague away. 
uh, coal wow. smoke. Um, but at the same time, it was pretty widely understood even then that when people got sick and they couldn't breathe, you took them out of London. You took them to the countryside where they could get some fresh air. So, you know, it took some time, but people started figuring out there were health consequences and, uh, you know, immediate health consequences. Then eventually these much more complicated questions like acid rain comes along, where instead of it making people sick in the city where the coal is burned, it's traveling hundreds of miles and coming down um, in, in another country and ruining their lakes and, and their forests, you know, so a much more subtle, distant problem that required science to figure out. And then now, of course, climate change is uh, the ultimate in that because it is a global problem and it manifests in what look like natural events. And so mm -hmm. it takes a lot of science to, to understand it. And, and then, of course, we've just had so many decades of denial from the fossil fuel industry. The coal industry was a leader in that. Um, that has made people believe that there is some question about the science and, and that slowed us down, has slowed us down for a really long time. And that is, of course, how I got into this in the first place. I mean, I, we didn't really talk about that, but I am an environmental attorney. I worked for a time as an assistant attorney general in the state of Minnesota. And we had a proceeding in the mid-90s where we were trying to quantify in dollars the environmental costs of generating electricity and we got most of it then from coal so we focused on coal and that meant we had to look at you know how many people die from the air pollution what happens to the mercury what's what about the acid rain but we also looked at global warming and the coal industry brought several witnesses to minnesota to testify that the the science on which on which the rest of the world was relying in global treaties uh was biased and that global warming wasn't going to happen, or if it did, it would just be a little, and we'd all like it, it would be filled with benefits, and those other scientists were very biased from uh, politics, or they just want grant money or something. So so that was my first experience in the mid-90s, confronting climate change, confronting the, the coal industry, uh, and confronting industrial denial. So it really fed into both of the books that I ended up writing. Definitely. And we'll go into the industrial denials um, very soon. And, you know, I think what's, what's interesting about the, the coal and climate change and how that's how, how much this impact has and why it was so difficult and why it so, took so long is that it's kind of like a frog boiling slowly. Right. It's you, it's not one of those things where you can see the immediate impact and you can't even really directly attribute that because maybe people were smoking cigarettes at that time that developed lung cancer. It's just one of the variables that enhance these different diseases and, and cancers that we've had uh, and probably killed millions of people that, you know, that, that we just can't directly attribute to because of the fact that it's, it's, it's a slow process. Right. Um, yeah. Sorry. You were going to say. Yeah. Well, no, I, I just wanted to agree with you uh, on that, that the, you know, it is relatively slow um, and it is also the fact that it is happening all around us and, and other people are involved. So with smoking, for example, um, it it took, you know, maybe 20 years for the first signals of, to, to show up that lung cancer was going to skyrocket. Um, but by then, so many people were smoking. And when everybody around you is doing something, it just automatically becomes the social norm and it automatically feels acceptable. And if everybody around you is burning coal or fossil fuels, the same thing happens. And, and it's just hard for us to 
it's hard for us to be alarmed by things that happen relatively slowly and by things that are by then very common. Mm. We, we evolved to respond to sudden, unusual, unpredictable events. Um, right. and, and that makes us not well equipped to deal with these slow emerging problems. Particularly with all the things that were happening with, you know, World War One, World War Two, like all of these the things that were happening on the global front. And I, I would imagine this was not the main priority for people, for countries, particularly that were trying to survive and also go against each other and not necessarily, you know, team up as a global unit to fight climate change. So I, I can imagine that this is such a difficult thing. You know, it, it seems like when I look at the chart from the 1800s, it's like you've got this big hockey stick in terms of the, the greenhouse emissions. At what point did the, I would imagine it's the developed nations first that had to take action. Did we kind of place this war on fighting um, the, the, you know, the, the war against coal? So at what era did that really start to happen? Well, you're talking about climate change. So of course that's climate not change, just yeah. about coal, but about all the fossil fuels. Um, and a few other things as well, but fossil fuels will be our, our focus here. Um, you know, people knew this a long time ago. They knew this theoretically a long time ago in the 1800s and the 1900s. They knew CO2 traps heat. You burn, you burn a carbon-based fuel, you make CO2, CO2 traps heat. So it, it was pretty clear what the theoretical construct was. In the LBJ administration, we had a warning coming out in, I think, 65, that this could be a big problem. Um, in 1979, the, the National Academy of Sciences, which is the ultimate group that we turn to to advise the nation on questions of science, issued their first report saying, you know, we, we really can't see how this is not going to lead to big problems. Um, by 1990, we had uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change put together, so this global group of climate scientists really looking at this. Um, by 1992, we had a global treaty signed by most of the nations in the world at the Earth Summit in Rio, signed by a Republican president, ratified by the U.S. Senate. So by 1992, I think you can say that was you know, maybe one way to, to trace the official effort of the nations of the world to avoid dangerous climate change. Um, and then, you know, things kind of went up and down and up and down, depending on the politics and, and levels of denial and, and frankly, who was in the White House and what sort of messages they were sending. Um, and we've obviously seen some major ups and downs on that issue in the very recent past. Sure, sure. And has it mostly been just this late reaction of, you know, whether it's politics or whether it's, it's, it's just different things that were happening in the world that was more of a priority uh, that makes it so hard now for us to reverse the usage of coal, particularly given how, you know, our electricity grids are, are, are dependent on, on like, it's it's so much of our system of how we our, our infrastructure is built around the usage of coal, which is why there's such a high switching cost. Uh, is that is that part of the reason why, or is there another reason why it's so hard to get past coal for us? Well, you know, I I do want to stress we are getting past coal in the developing countries, and yeah. or rather in the developed countries. The developing ones are going to take some time. But the economics of coal have really changed dramatically in the years since I wrote that book. And so now we're actually seeing it is 
less expensive to deal to to be building renewables, to be building wind and solar. We've got to deal with reliability issues, and that probably means we're going to have to build a lot of storage. Storage is getting cheaper as well. Um, but but certainly you're right that when you have an institutional an, an infrastructure built around a certain kind of energy, that's always going to take a long time to change. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have organizations that are essentially built around that industry, it's going to take a long time to change. So I think even if everybody had been totally honest from the beginning and, and well-meaning and concerned about the future, this would have taken a while and this would have taken, uh, you know, money, a lot of money. Uh, of course, we spent a lot of money on fossil fuels already. So many of the projections now of the the future cost of the alternative technologies project a, a path that is actually more economic than continuing to burn fossil fuels, even if you don't consider all the externalities like climate change and, and health. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of factors involved, but absolutely one of them has been politics, has been the self-interest of the industries most invested in these technologies. Um, and unfortunately, those have gotten very much blended together. I mean, one of one of the things I, I write about is, is how if you are an individual working for an industry, you've been accused of doing something bad. Your immediate reflex, your psychological reflex is, of course, going to be defensive. Because especially if you didn't know or you just weren't thinking about it, you don't feel guilty. So what's going on here? It must be that your critics have an ulterior motive. Mm-hmm. It must be that your critics don't understand your own noble intentions, right? So you become defensive and you usually lash out at your critics. That goes, I think, from a psychological reflex to a corporate strategy. Uh, and it gets, you know, institutionalized. And then those companies end up hiring PR firms and lawyers and others. And then it becomes kind of an industry. And then it becomes part of your ideology. Right. So denying that you're changing the climate may have started out as nothing more than a psychological reflex. But it then migrates through from reflex to strategy to industry to ideology. And now, of course, it's part of the culture war in our country so that, you know, whether you believe that climate change is a huge threat we need to deal with still depends a lot on your party affiliation, not as much as it used to, um, but still a lot. Meaning you're talking about like the right side, not supporting climate change as much as the left. Oh, I'm I'm talking about the Republican Party basically being still in the grip of climate denial. Republicans themselves, the rank and file, you see denial is gone way down. And and especially with the fires and the storms and things, I mean, people are, are really starting to worry. Alarm on the Democratic side has gone also way up because mm. of these events and, and other things. But, you know, you, you still have elected officials in Congress who are, are still pretending this is not a problem, or if it is, we can't do anything about it. And it's kind of ironic because Exxon's not pretending it's not happening anymore. I mean, after decades of denial, the, the major oil companies have, have said, yeah, we're, you know, our product is, is causing this problem. They even claim to support the, the goals of the, of the Paris Agreement. Now, the, the U.S. companies like Exxon are, are still projecting they're going to be selling a whole bunch of their product, even though, in fact, what the science tells us is we need to cut our emissions roughly by half by 2030, which is 
huge. Um, So I'm not going to say there's no denial coming from that industry. But but it is kind of funny to see, I think, one of our two major parties being more conservative, more anti-regulatory, more in science denial than the industries most affected by the science. Right. Well, if you were in the shoes of some of the political leaders that are out there today, what, what are some of the effective things that you think um, you know, they should do in order to, you know, as you said, reduce it by half by 2030. Like, what are some of the things, if you didn't have these obstacles of the political fights, what are some of the things or the top two things that you think you would, we would need well, to do? my focus has almost always been on the electric side of things. Um, so generally, when we think about this, we think about electricity is maybe a third of the fossil fuel problem, transportation is maybe a third of the fossil fuel problem, and industry and buildings is kind of the other third. And and I'm leaving out, you know, methane and agriculture and some other important things. But when it comes to electricity, you know, we're very, very lucky that the technologies have evolved so far and so fast in terms of cost. So the cost of, of wind and renewables is plummeting, storage costs are plummeting, um, and we still have some nuclear, so that's carbon-free. And, I mean, we have to worry about the fact that those plants are getting old, but that gives us something for a while. We've got some hydro. Um, policy-wise, states have had enormous success with renewable energy standards. So what we're talking about now on a federal level is probably trying to put in place some kind of a clean energy standard that would make um, all the utilities gradually increase their carbon-free energy. So that means they're going to be shifting certainly from coal and soon, I hope, from natural gas, building lots more renewables and storage. And and that's how we get there. Now, meanwhile, these same companies, this same industry is going to be getting a whole lot new, uh, a lot of new business because we'll be converting the cars to electric uh, and we'll be converting, hopefully, many of the building and industrial technologies also to electric. I mean, this is an enormous opportunity for a lot of industries that can be pushing these technologies that move us further away from global catastrophe instead of closer to it. And and I think the markets in many ways know it. I mean, if you look at you know the market capitalization of Tesla, you know, it's it's higher than Exxon, which just blows my mind you know and uh, and and i think that means that people are starting to really catch on uh both to the scale of the threat and to the scale of the opportunity because you know there it's just an epic opportunity for a whole lot of industries and a whole lot of companies that figure out how to integrate these technologies into our lives yeah one thing i was reading about was um uh, the, the Gates notes and Bill Gates obviously is 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 one of the people that are leading this change in terms of climate change. And he he put out this graph. Uh, I think it was called the other thirty other seventy five percent, which is the fact that you know everyone is talking about coal and the you know the the finding alternative sources of energy like electricity, but that's only twenty five percent. And you've got uh, something that's just a percentage off of of um of coal is agriculture which is like 24 percent. i think 25 percent was uh the quarter of that was 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 from coal and then 24 percent was agriculture 20 something percent was for manufacturing um i was like 
very surprised by that because at least from my perspective, people don't really talk too much about the impact that agriculture has, or maybe they do. I just maybe don't hear about it. But at least in our generation, I feel like the big talk is around, you know, uh, this transportation because of how hot Tesla is of, you know, people driving electricity cars, but it's only like 14, 15% of the actual impact. It's huge, but it's not the big, you know, elephant in the room. The big elephants are coal, of course, which people are already talking about, but agriculture. What What is it about? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I would keep cars as being one of the big elephants in the room. I mean, once, you know, transportation is huge. It's not all cars, of course. It's trucks. Plane, planes are going to be tricky. We'll have to figure something out with that. Um, but if you can convert your cars and your light-duty trucks and then eventually your heavier-duty trucks to electric, you've taken another big bite out of the out of this particular apple that we, we need to get rid of. Um, right. And a lot of industrial processes, they burn fossil fuels on site. A lot of those processes can be electrified and made much more efficient using electric motors, for example. So the, you know, when we talk about uh, electricity, electricity, there's the people who are currently making the electricity, but then there's the rest of the economy that could be electrified. So mm. changing all that to electricity as much as you can, um, and then making it clean, that's a, you know, a huge gateway through this. There are lots of other technologies that can be brought into play and, and probably will, uh, and certainly will, and it's going to be hard to predict right now. There's you know, some carbon capture and storage. I think that'll get more interesting when we can actually take carbon out of the air and not just out of the stack of a coal plant because you know, we're going to be winding down coal anyway. So that's a less useful technology. Um, there's certainly different generations of nuclear power. Storage is one of the things that Bill Gates has been investing in, and, and that will be huge. I mean, in many respects, you can combine renewables with storage. That's the holy grail. Mm. You know, it's, it's energy and storage, which in, in essence is what coal is, right? It's energy and storage. It's just right. that it comes with all this baggage get rid of the baggage and, and you're there. Um, hydrogen is, a, is an option. You can make hydrogen out of water uh, and you can use it as a fuel. Um, so there are going to be a lot of different technologies. And, and as far as agriculture is concerned, you know, we, we need to try to make sure we don't have the, the same kind of methane emissions. Um, we need to think about the fertilizers and, and how they sometimes end up uh, in the air and how we make those things. But there's a lot of exciting technology out there. I think that will be able to address agriculture as well as transportation, as well as electricity. Yeah, yeah. I think I think um, he was mentioning something around this new technology around how how there's different coatings of being able to keep food fresh longer, like two to three times longer, because I guess obviously with agriculture and, and how much you know, cattling it, it has an impact in terms of the environment. You just being able to keep food lasting longer is, is going to be mm. a huge impact. So it seems like what he's advocating for um, is innovating ourselves out of this, this instead of just regulating, regulating, regulating. He feels like the biggest needle movers seems to be around, you know, entrepreneurs and, and innovators that we have in our, in our society that can really create these new, um, solutions, it seems. Yeah. L let me yeah. just push back, though, on any suggestion that those are necessarily contrary things. I mean, okay. sure. during the time when we've done very little at the federal level in terms of um, 
fighting climate change. And I could go back and, and qualify that, but I won't for now. The states really took the action. And the states passed renewable energy standards, for example. And those renewable energy standards said to utilities, you know, start little, 1%, 2%, 3%, but build up over time and get more and more of your power from renewable sources. And, And sometimes they define that very broadly, but, you know, renewable was usually it, it might be carbon free. Then you see industries emerging because they've got enough of a shelter right, to know there's going to be some market. You've got, you have lots of competition between different companies. You have competition between different technologies. So this is a case where regulation really did push innovation. So did federal subsidies, by the way, and they still are. So, uh, you know, I, I say, welcome, Bill Gates. More power to you. Let's innovate. Let's spend that money and come up with those new technologies. But let's not underestimate how good the technologies are that we already have. And mm. and one thing to keep in mind is, you know, I, I think there's a common misconception that you spend some money, you invent something, and then Eureka, you've invented it, and then you can sell it and, and your problems are solved. And, and what really happens is you work and work and work and work and you come up with these inventions and, and they're incredibly expensive and you do your pilot projects and your demonstration projects and you eventually push them out and you learn by doing. You deploy the technology and that improves it, that reduces the cost. That process can take decades. Fortunately, we've already gone through that process when it comes to wind and, and solar and to some extent batteries. It's still We're still uh, reducing costs and improving uh, performance. So uh, yeah, hopefully we're, we're gonna have some good new technologies that help us, especially in the latter half of this century. Uh, but right now, we've got a lot of good technologies, and we need to be deploying them as fast as possible. Right, right. Particularly, I, I guess, like the next 10 years is one of the most crucial tipping points for us as a, as a you know, global society. Right. Well, the latest IPCC report said if we want to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, and, and there's a lot of reason why we want to do that, because the further above that you get, the more likely you're talking about a truly irreversible catastrophe. Uh, if we wanted to limit to 1.5 degrees, that means cutting emissions about 50% by 2030, uh, and then getting to net zero by 2050. And below that, or beyond that, we've got to start going negative, which means we need to be pulling carbon out and, and, and other greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere if possible, and sequestering it uh, mm-hmm. underground probably. And and so what that means is, in many ways, reversing the process of, of the fossil fuel era for, you know, the last centuries where we've been taking carbon out of the ground and putting it into the air. We're going to need to start doing the opposite later in the century. And that's really why it is helpful to figure out how to do some form of carbon capture and how to how to get rid of that stuff because otherwise it's going to stay up there for a very long time continuing to warm us sure well i can dig definitely dig deeper into this but i do also want to cover your recent book which is the industrial strength uh denial and uh you know this is certainly in line with the 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 you know what's what's been happening around the coal industry and how that's impacted climate change, of course. But you you talk about eight different stories, right? I think um, talk about slavery, radium, tobacco, um, the, the the amount of car accidents in the highways, um, leaded gas, 
Yeah. Yeah. The financial industry. The financial the industry. industry. That's a big one. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's such a fascinating thing. I, I actually have a personal story around this. Um, it's definitely not as severe as the, the stories that you've, you've highlighted. But I went through in Munich a BMW automobile um, tour. And they had all of the outlines of their stories and all the way back from the beginnings. No mention of, you know, the employment and I don't know if it's exactly employment, actually, but, you know, recruitment of uh, forced laborers in concentration camps to create these aero engines that supported Germany in the World War One era. Um, and it seems like I did some research online. They did publicly apologize. So it wasn't like one of those denials, but it was just fascinating to see that there was just no mention of it at all in yes. their entire wow. museum. And so I first, I, I like, because I was intentionally looking out for this information just because of the history that I know about Germany. Uh, it was just fascinating to see it firsthand. But of course, it doesn't, and there, there's, there's there's crazy stories like the things that you've mentioned. Um, I would love to dig deeper into some of these. Maybe um, actually, is is there one that you haven't really dig dug deep into in in the other interviews that you've done that we can go into? Because I'm fascinated by all of these. Hmm. Well, I wonder. Let's see. Maybe you know, maybe ozone because I think that's recent enough that um, people think they know what happened, but I don't think they really do. Um, right, because it's not talked about that much anymore. Yeah, we don't talk about that it, that much. I mean, it's a really pretty interesting story from beginning to end. I mean, for one thing, back in the 20s, refrigeration comes out, and alas, they were using really toxic chemicals that would sometimes, these gases, that would sometimes leak out and kill people in their sleep. So we had a problem there. And this... Um, uh, engineer at GM, which owned Frigidaire, uh, comes up with CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons. And this is like a miracle chemical. By the way, this is the same guy who invented leaded gasoline, so it's kind of an interesting little uh, <laughs> connection between my two chapters there. But uh, he invents chlorofluorocarbons, and they seem like this miracle chemical. They're not toxic. They're not flammable. They don't interact with other chemicals. They're, they're very stable. Um, so people think this is great and this is sort of what lets the refrigeration industry take off and it, eventually they get used in, in air conditioning and then after the war suddenly aerosols are a big deal and you know it's a push button age we're using spray cans and CFCs are a great propellant because it won't they won't interact with your deodorant and your hairspray and and that makes them a really good chemical uh, but eventually other scientists start to realize wait a minute where is the stuff going to go? It's so stable. It doesn't decay, these CFCs. It stays up there in the atmosphere, and it keeps rising. And, and these other scientists, uh, Sherwood Rowland and Mario Molina, were the, the two I write about the most, and, and they were really at the head of this, realized that eventually this stuff goes into the ozone layer, way in, into the stratosphere. It gets exposed to solar radiation, and it comes apart, and the chlorine atoms go around and gobble up the ozone. And so this super non-reactive chemical becomes extremely reactive, but it takes years to get there, and then it has this very global impact. And they said, you know, this is going to be a problem because without that ozone layer, the radiation that's destroying the CFCs 
comes down here and it affects life. And in fact, life on Earth depends on that ozone layer staying healthy. So this was a, a huge crisis, but theoretical only at first. So in 1974, they published this study saying, big problem, we better look into this, but they haven't detected any ozone loss yet. So people are, are not really sure what to make of it. But the aerosol industry says, oh, this is a, you know, yet another crazy attack on industry and on free enterprise. So they couldn't very well stand up and say, you know, it's so important to convey hairspray from the can to your head using this technology that we're willing to destroy the ozone layer. I mean, they had, they had to change it into a very different sort of defense. And so it became a very, very much about the free market and, and government being, you know, trying to destroy it. Uh, actually, though, it was under, I think it was the Ford administration, then in the late 70s, they said, yeah, you know, we've looked into this, we've had the National Academy of Sciences look into this, and we've decided that catastrophic risk on one side, marginal benefit on the other, we're going to ban these chemicals from spray cans. So in the 70s, that happened. It took a couple of years. It was no big deal. They started, you know, we, we still have hairspray. Um, they figured out ways to do it. Um, and the public kind of stopped paying attention to this problem. But we were still using these chemicals in air conditioning and refrigeration. And that was still going to be a huge problem. Um, because eventually those chemicals leak out. Uh, 80s come along, suddenly de deregulation is, is all the rage and people aren't so worried about industry anymore. The, in, the chemical industry in DuPont was the main maker of CFCs at the time. They actually stopped looking for alternatives because they didn't feel the regulatory pressure, even though the science hadn't changed. Um, but then 1985, suddenly, whoa, ozone hole over the Atlantic. Huge degree of depletion of ozone over, fortunately, our least populated continent. Um, one funny little point there I, I write about is that the depletion was so much greater than the scientists and the models projected that NASA's satellites had been programmed to ignore extreme readings like that as instrument error. So it wasn't NASA that discovered this. It was the British Antarctic Survey, these, you know, guys all dressed up in furs, I guess, or some wow. very warm things who were like looking up at the sky with their instruments. And they said, wait a minute, this is a big problem. And NASA had to come back and say, oh, oops, you're right. We missed it, but it's a big problem. Right? They just couldn't so, even imagine programming that into their detection system. Yeah, I mean, they were looking for depletion of 2%, 3%, 4%, and it turned out to be depletion of like 40%. So they wow. just did not even, it didn't register. So, you know, I think it's an important lesson that when we talk about uncertainties, especially in our computer models, uh, that doesn't necessarily make us safe. You know, sometimes the unknowns make things a lot worse than we project. Um, so eventually it still took a couple years there were you know people flying airplanes through the antarctic trying to measure things and dangerous missions and whatnot um but we did then pass the montreal protocol a global treaty saying we're going to phase these we were first we were going to cut them and then we we're going to phase them out um signed by ronald reagan ratified by the u.s senate um, the industry, DuPont, uh, other chemical companies eventually said, yeah, you know, this does look bad. We're going to stop making these chemicals <laughs> altogether, which made it easy then to just ban them. 
Keep in mind, of course, at that point, CFCs were a small sliver of their income, and they could sell the alternatives. And it was pretty mm-hmm. obvious there was a global crisis unfolding. And, and so I, you know, I want to give them credit for overcoming denial as a result of responding to evidence. But I also want to put that in, in the appropriate context. So eventually the world phased out these CFCs. Some of the substitutes have other problems that we have to work on. Um, but, you know, if, if space aliens came to Earth and said, you know, we think you're going to destroy yourselves with your technology, and we were to try to argue that, no, we are too enlightened. We, we can handle problems. Yes, we almost destroyed the ozone layer, but we figured it out. And yes, there was denial, but we passed these laws and we phased out the chemicals. Now the ozone layer is getting better. So this is a big success story. See, we're, we're enlightened. Um, that's, you know, that's the example we would point to of enlightened action. Hmm. Then the aliens would say, yeah, what about global warming? <laughs> because what happened was after we dealt with the ozone layer and, and we dealt with it in the sense of putting in place the laws that would phase out the chemicals, that was seen as a success story. But it was also, I think, a warning to the fossil fuel industry that the world had, you know, the ability to mobilize in response to global threats and and concern over climate change was increasing. What followed was this backlash where you see a lot of industries working together. Tobacco is definitely one of them and certainly fossil fuels uh, funding these uh, organizations, think tanks, uh, advocacy groups, that then would be promoting this idea that you cannot trust government, you cannot trust the science that government uses. So all these industries facing regulation were were often speaking through these other groups claiming this is junk science, can't trust it. And you know, whereas back in the 70s with the ozone in the aerosol industry, they were talk, pointed to the KGB being behind some of this and, and the communists, uh, more recently, the, the distrust building has been around the idea that it's the elites who are trying to somehow exploit the, the common person. And, and so I, I think they really did over the decades build lots of distrust into our society so that there is, a, you know, within a huge segment of our, of our population, tremendous distrust of, of government, of academia, of mainstream media, of, of science, unless it's, you know, scientists telling them what they, they want to hear. Um, and I think that has really done severe damage to our democracy and made it really hard for us to, to address even the most dire global threats. Yeah, I think we're making progress. And um, I, you know, I, I remain optimistic that we're going to make a lot of progress on here. But, uh, you know, it, it sometimes takes more work to remain optimistic than uh, you wish. Well, when it comes to, like, I always bring it down to incentives, right? It's, incentives is such an underrated um, component of how, you know, obviously we function as a society and how we function as individuals from, like, these corporations that are denying the impacts of climate change that we're trying to reduce the, I guess, the impact that the government had in terms of the studies and everything. What exactly was it? Like, I don't understand like how that really can have an impact in terms of, um, you know, individuals denying this information about the government. Because was the government trying to tell consumers 
to change certain behaviors that already existed that consumers could you know potentially could go against like it doesn't seem like for me to 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 fight climate change or to to go through it i'm not really changing that much in my behavior um it seems so whether the government i trust the government or not like i I don't my behavior doesn't really change does that make sense well on on a certain level it makes sense when it comes to fossil fuels generally i mean nobody really cares what is you know fueling their electricity they want the lights to go on right um they don't really care that much about what is propelling their car or or whatever vehicle they want transportation um that might be one of the reasons why the industry instead of just saying oh no they're taking away our coal plants in which point the public would shrug um they they sort of had to build it into more of a a, a sort of part of the culture war you know that mm. they're you know they're going to make your electricity bills go way high and then you're going to be freezing in the dark and uh you know so so that might be part of it that makes sense yeah yeah and and it may just be sort of a generational thing but but one thing to remember is that in the in the 70s you know we had the the oil crises and coal became this sort of all-american alternative to oil it was it was the fossil fuel that we had lots of we were the saudi arabia of coal and so when people started saying oh yeah except it's killing you and causing climate change it felt like or it could be portrayed as an attack on on america uh and so i think it it all got you know very mixed up and i have to say it's been remarkably effective you know Mm. i mean if you just measured this as you know what did we have to do to get our democracy to ignore this really scary science for a very long time, promoting corporate denial, uh, promoting climate denial, um, and and doing it often in these very indirect ways, um, they they've done a good job at delaying things. Now you know we're all going to pay for that, uh, and and in part because now we really have to hurry because we have been dragging our feet for a long time. Yeah, Unfortunately, it's going to be easier now because we have some technology, better technology. But the deadline comes so much sooner that it's it's going to be, you know, it would have been so much better to just start doing this gradually, you know, in, in 1992 when we first signed the treaty saying we were going to do it. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's referring back to your point around, you know, us using hairsprays and these chemicals that are spraying around. One of the interesting stories that you talk about is radium and mm. how, you know, Mary, Mary, Mary Curie, she, 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 you know, really pioneered the radium in, in terms of how it could help us treat cancer. And all of a sudden, it just kind of took the world on its own. Uh, I guess I would love to get your your take on that story and, and exactly what happened that, that transpired. Because I don't think people in our generation actually know about it. I think people just see radium as it is. Um, yeah. But also, this the second part is... is um, actually, let's just talk about the first part. All right. <laughs> so, so all right, you're right. Marie Curie discovers this chemical... It's an amazing thing, this this element. It is so powerful. Already they're really confused by radioactivity, which seems to defy the laws of physics. But this stuff is way more powerful than uranium, and it it, it glows in the dark. I mean, it's just it's mystical, and, and there's this aura of wizardry around it. And one of the first things they learn about it is that it will burn you, and the scientists learn this the hard way, carrying around vials. 
So they know, okay, it kills human flesh. What can we do with this? And they think, well, we can we can attack cancerous tumors. And so they were using it for legitimate, rational medical reasons very early in the 20th century. Um, but for the industry, it was a lot of work to make this stuff, uh, to, to refine the radium. And if you're using it just for tumors, you use the same stuff over and over again. That's not a good business model, right? Mm. So an industry, a, chem, a company in the U.S. pops up called Standard Chemical, brand new company. They fo are formed to refine radium. But they know there's a lot of work that goes into this, and what they want is more demand. And so they decide they are going to promote consumption of radium. You don't just put a little vial of it next to your tumor. You drink it. You inject it into people's bodies. You breathe the radon gases that emanate from it. They started a clinic in Pittsburgh, what they called the nation's first free radium clinic. And they invited people in to be treated for all kinds of things. They were injecting them with radium. Uh, cancer was one of the problems they claimed to be able to treat. In fact, they ended up killing people much faster than the cancer would have. And we know this um, from congressional hearings that followed. And we've got a, I've got a quote in the book from a company doctor saying that, well, the way he looks at it, he's just shoving them over a little more quickly uh, than wow. the cancer would have. Yeah, there's a lot of quotes in this book um, that, that make you go, wow. Um, and they also tr claim to treat things that radium causes, like anemia. Um, and eventually, two industries emerge. One is the basically a health fad industry that emerged. It was sold not just by Standard Chemical, but by a few others. Radium suddenly is in all kinds of consumer products. Uh, and it's advertised, you know, with radium. And they, you know, I mean, we're talking about everything from toothpaste to rectal suppositories. And they're claiming that this radium is going to cure everything from violent insanity to sunburn to baldness to tooth decay. I mean, you know, almost every possible thing you can name. And uh, lots of people are buying the, the drinks, they're taking the pills, they're using the products. Um, and that so that was one industry that was bad. The other industry is they started putting it in paint. So you could make low in the dark paint, which was really useful for watch dials, especially like if you're in the trenches in World War One, and you want mm. to know what time it is. Uh, so they, they invent this glow-in-the-dark paint. They hire lots and lots of very young women, usually 15-year-old girls. They teach them to um, make a, a tip out of their paintbrushes by putting the, the paintbrush in their lips. Uh, and then they put it in the paint and they paint it on. So, of course, they end up consuming a lot of radium. They told them, don't worry, this is healthy stuff. Uh, and eventually their bones started to decay, especially their jaw oh bones. They started losing teeth. I mean, we're talking about jaws actually coming out of their, being lifted out of their mouths by their dentist, uh, and they died some gruesome deaths. It, and, and there was a lot of attention. They were called the Radium Girls. By now, now we're talking about the 1920s. These are 15-year-old girls. These usually start out as very young girls, uh, would take two or three years to consume usually enough radium to, to kill them. And they didn't all die. I mean, so that was part of it. So the industry could look and say, no, it's only, you know, this, this percentage of girls. The industry claimed that they were being punished because since the work was so easy, they had hired cripples and other weak people and that these, and when their diseases naturally progressed, it was unfairly blamed 
on radium. So they were essentially arguing that their faces were dissolving due to some mysterious pre-existing condition. Uh, it, it, was, it was pretty appalling stuff. Meanwhile, on the, the consumer side of this, there was this one case in particular that got huge amount of attention. Now we're talking about the early 30s, so we're in the Depression. Uh, a very rich man, a, a sort of well-known socialite who had been the head of a company, had been drinking little bottles of radium, and he could afford to poison himself very thoroughly because uh, he had so much money and he drank it. He apparently gave some to his racehorse. He sent it to his friends, uh, drank this stuff. Um, and then he ends up with this same condition where his teeth are falling out, the, his jaw is dissolved, there are holes into his head from his skull. It, it becomes, again, public headline stuff. Uh, that plus some pressure from from the, the kind of weak federal agencies that were starting to pay attention helped bring this as a, as a consumer health fad, helped bring this industry to an end. My but God. Uh, yeah, I mean, among the things that I found fascinating in terms of the denial was the, the twisting every fact into a positive thing. So for example, they discovered very early, 1914, that the, the radium doesn't just go through you, it lodges in your bones. So these radium girls, they had radioactive bones, they had radioactive breath. Um, but instead of saying, hmm, maybe we need to study this, they immediately said, oh, good, then you continue to benefit from this product, this, you know, flesh burning element that's fused into your bones. Um, and now, now, to be fair, though, I do want to say that many of the leaders of this industry poisoned themselves. Uh, the man who invented the paint and started the, the radioactive paint company in the U.S. ended up dying from anemia caused by radium exposure. According to some reports, he had already had to have many of his fingers amputated from handling the, the radium and had lost his teeth. I mean, these were these were bad deaths. So the this man, is not evil of 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 uh, you know uh, asymmetric information where they're trying to hide something that they know but the public doesn't know this is stupidity well i would i would probably make it a blend but there was okay. definitely enough they, they they believed what they were saying enough to expose themselves to some very dangerous things yeah. um but even once they knew that they were still sort of hiding it is probably the best way to look at this and the and the guy who founded um, Standard Chemical, the one who was, you know, started the, the clinic and, and whatnot, and it was sort of the biggest deal. He died like nine years later. And one of the things that happened was he had, he was trying to promote radioactive waste as a fertilizer. So he hired this botanist to test it and to write about it. And he had him put it on his own garden. The, I mean, not the botanist garden, but the CEO's garden. Um, eventually, this man died of, uh, died with anemia being a contributing factor. Mm. Anemia being caused, one of the common causes of uh, radium exposure. But if he ha had eaten his own vegetables with, you know, fertilized by radioactive waste, if he had taken his own medicine, which his which he claimed treated anemia, this may well have contributed to his death. My God, my God. I mean, how long was this ingrained in part of society where it was just a mainstream understood fact, not fact, but just understood belief that radium was as people probably see CBD today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, maybe I don't want to go too far there. I yeah. Know. Yeah. 
Um, well, it was discovered around 1900, and the uh, the Radium Girls trials were in the t- 1920s. Um, it was still a health fad throughout the 20s. It was really in the early 30s that started to fade away. So, you know, it took a couple decades for the harms to um, become apparent, well, for the industry to get in place, for the exposure to occur, for the harms to become apparent, and for the industry to mostly fade away. That's actually pretty quick when you think about how long we've been fighting about climate change, for example. My God. Is it just something about human psychology? Because they say history repeats itself in different forms, in different severity, and you know, obviously in different dynamics. This is clearly an example. Is human psychology? Are we? What is it about us that just is so vulnerable to this belief of fads and the trust in, you know, you know, information that just may not necessarily be true? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a, a really good question. I do talk about psychology a fair, bo- a fair bit in Industrial Strength Denial. There I'm mainly talking about the psychology that makes it so easy for the industries to deny these mm. problems, um, not so much the consumers. But, but I think they're certainly related. Um, I think, you know, we didn't evolve to be so concerned about systemic risk, certainly not delayed complicated systemic risk. And that's the case, I think, whether you are selling the product or buying it. And also, you know, we want to believe that we live in a just world and that the people who seem so friendly and are selling us these products are good people. And they may well be good people in in other aspects of their lives, but, you know, we we want to trust people usually. And and once other people start using a product, you know, it seems safe, and and so we follow along. Uh, but yeah, I mean, a lot of it is just how long it takes for these harms to develop and be noticed. And the more you've got a complicated supply chain, uh, for example, a global market, the the longer the chain, you know, the more economic links there are between what causes the harm and where it manifests. And that makes it hard for both ends, right? The people yeah. who feel the harm don't know it's because of that radium drink they were drinking five years ago. The people selling the radium drink have no idea who's going to be taking it and, and don't really worry too much about what might happen to them. Uh, so, so I think it's that distance. Now, how do we bridge that distance? That's through science and data and expertise. But that's why it's a big problem if folks are not trusting science and data and expertise. Then they become really vulnerable to much more primitive sort of tribal appeals, right? Mm-hmm. If those mm-hmm. people who are trying to scare you about that product, they're bad people and they don't like you and you shouldn't trust them. Okay, so that slows us way, way down. And, uh, you know, I think it explains a lot of what's going on politically right now. As a final question, Barbara, if you were to look back 100 years from now and you look at the things that are ingrained into our society today that consumers just have a belief of thinking that it's good for them or thinking that it's not harmful based on what corporations are telling us or denying, what is one thing you think as a prediction that you think can have uh, you know, some poor reflection on? Maybe not as bad as radium, but something yeah, that you think as, could be something. Well, yeah. not, not as obvious maybe as radium. Yeah. Um, I think that historians, and, and probably a lot sooner than then, um, are, are going to be looking back 
at social media and, and big tech because, you know, and, and of course we are now starting to talk about how it perpetuates fraud, how it allows disinformation to spread and, and other ways that it can be really harming our society and, and undermining our elections. I don't know how to solve that. This is not an industry I've put a lot of, of uh, study into, but I think we're going to be spending the next few decades really trying to get a grip on that, figure out how we should put in place regulations, new social norms, other sorts of societal structures that help us become better consumers of information uh, and, and try to figure out how how to handle that because we are a social species. That's one emphasis that, that's very clear in my book that, that we make each other smart and we can make each other stupid. And when you're talking about social media, it goes straight to that question. And, and we really are gonna have to figure out how to use it to make us smarter and minimize the, the uh, spread of, of delusions and deceptions. Yeah. Great. Well, powerful would end it. Um, Barbara, thank you so much for coming on. Obviously, you've got two, two books. Um, do you actually have the books? I know you've got like thousands of books behind you. I don't know yeah, if you oh, have yeah. so people can recognize it. I saw the one in cold. Yeah, there you go. Cold. Cold, yep. And uh, Industrial Strength Denial. Industrial Denial. Sold wherever fine books are sold. You can obviously get them online. You can order them from your bookstore. Um, I have a website, barbarafreeze.com, but uh, you can find the books without going there if you don't want to. Cool. And then uh, every uh, person that knows how to read Mandarin, obviously go to check out our, her yeah, site. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> get, get, get the chapter that's missing in China. Barbara, thank you so much for coming on, guy. Thank you guys for tuning in, and we'll see you guys next week. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.